This is Two Lawyers Walking to a Bar. I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. And today we are drinking Raging Bitch IPAs. Raging B word. No, we can say bitch. Why can't we say bitch? Can you say bitch on TV? We're not on TV. You can't say bitch? Raging Bitch IPAs with Steve Feldman. Steve is an attorney at Murphy & McGonagall where he specializes in white-collar defense and internal investigations uh, and other securities work, and he's a former federal prosecutor. Good to have you, Steve. Thank you very much, Lee. And I know Steve asked for a dark beer, so we sent out our intrepid <laughs> alcohol expert, Cooper, and he came back with a, a very light beer. It's... It says pale ale on the label. That's the <laughs> it says pale, that's probably not dark. They it's did a- not have an extensive selection of dark beers at uh, Dwayne Reed, where I where I picked these guys up. To so be, to be fair, it says pale ale in very small letters at the bottom of the bottle. Everything else was like Miller Light, Bud Light. I like was I was like I know none of those are dark beers, so <laughs> I just like took a shot. I thought about getting Guinness. Would Guinness have been better? Yeah, Guinness would have been a lot better. That, that's super dark. That's perfect. <laughs> I know Guinness is dark, but I felt like it was like a stouty beer. Like maybe a stout is not a dark beer. I spent a lot of time thinking this through. <laughs> but this beer is really good, so thank you. Is it good? We're going yeah, to edit this entire section out. This because is my this favorite is, this part. Is, this is literally This is going to be the entire podcast. <laughs> Just making fun of Cooper for it's, his ability to tell light It's actually not that bad a beer, though. I think it's decent. Because no, I like it. Because I it's like a light it beer. Too. I actually think it's good. Yeah. Like all right, it. all right. We're we're getting told we got to move on. So, so Steve, if you could uh, maybe start off by telling us a little bit about where uh, where you grew up and what your childhood was like, we sort of like to like to get sort of a little background on the person before we get into the lawyer stuff. Sure, I uh, grew up in Columbia, Maryland. Uh, Columbia is a plant community, lovely place where they uh, really tried to make a diverse, uh, et- you know, ethnically diverse. Um, socioeconomically diverse. It was a, a really nice community. Dad was a pharmacist. Mom was a social worker. Um, grew up going to public schools there. Uh, a very nice school system. Um, people who have gone on to do lots of nice things who, who went to my high school and middle school and elementary school. And um, uh, it was a great place. You could bike anywhere and from neighborhood to neighborhood around. There were lakes there. Everyone played soccer. Uh, very, you know, very happy with that childhood. Very happy with the community. It's, um, you know, people have pride in Columbia even to this sure. day. Did you know any lawyers growing up? Was a lawyer sort of ever when you were? If you look back on your childhood, did you ever think that you were going to be a lawyer? So I was the kid who um, argued any side of anything for fun, much <laughs> to my parents' chagrin. So they they could my mother could say anything to me, and I'd take the other side of that. So it was a – I was on debate team in high school. It was all a very natural fit for me to go into law. But I did have um, my, my grandfather actually who I never met passed away before I was born. He was a lawyer um, by by education and we had a close family friend who was in the um, attorney general's office in New Jersey where he did a lot of mob prosecutions who used to regale me and my dad with stories of, of what he did while at the AG's office. So I, I certainly heard about, you know, the way people practice law from from those folks. Gotcha. And where did you go to college? Went to Tufts University up in Boston. Oh, I'm an Amherst guy. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah. Go yeah. Purple Cows, huh? <laughs> purple Cows? No, Am- that's... Uh, oh, who's that? That's Williams. That's, that's Williams. What's, what's Amherst? Amherst? Amherst was the Lord Jeffs. Right, the Lord Jeffs. But very controversial. Lord Jeffrey Amherst gave smallpox to the Indians, apparently, so they have recently changed it. So now they are the Amherst Mammoths. That oh. was changed in the last year or two. At least so, they didn't so. go to the surf chefs. So that's kind of a right, – <laughs> that's not so fair because we're the Tufts Jumbos, right? We had – P.T. Barnum was on the uh, was on the board of Tufts okay. and gave Jumbo the elephant to Tufts, the, the actual body. When the elephant died, he was in Barnum Hall for years and years until a fire burned down Barnum Hall in the 70s and huh. burned down Tufts' mascot. It's funny. I never once have thought about why they were the Jumbos, but that's an interesting yeah, interesting to know. Yeah. Cool. Um, and what did you study at Tufts? I was a philosophy major. Okay. I went there thinking I was going to do poli sci or international relations and uh, had to fill a writing requirement. And the professor said, well, you know, you could fill that writing requirement by taking philosophy. And I took philosophy and 
got to write and argue either side for fun. So that was a recurrent theme, and I was happy and ended up taking great philosophy classes, a philosophy of law class from a professor named Hugo Badeau, who was this world-renowned expert on the philosophy against capital punishment hmm. um, and took you know, fascinating, fascinating ethics courses and really ended up loving the, the idea of, of arguing and writing and, and, and thinking. So since you were studying with, uh, with Hugo, going into law school, was there a thought that you were going to focus on capital punishment? Was that a focus of yours going into law school? No, even though I, I mean, I, I thought he was a fantastic, amazing man. I didn't necessarily follow everything he believed. He was, you know, I had my own views on capital punishment that didn't follow Hugo's in particular. And then I know after, after undergrad, you took a couple years off, right? You took a year or two off before you went to law school. Right. And what did you do during that time? So I worked in politics. I was um, – my first job out of college is I was uh, hired by a congressman's reelection campaign in New Hampshire uh, where I lived on the couch of one of his supporters and <laughs> spent my time um, you know, getting up each morning and, and doing phone calls to people or, or getting him in parades or organizing pancake dinner breakfasts or spaghetti dinners and – and holding signs by the highway. I mean, that was that was. I had an office on Main Street in Nashua that I ran for a little while during the campaign. How and did that, you How did you end up in New Hampshire? Was it a candidate that you really believed in, or was it? No, I was. I was essentially. I was a sign there. It was. Okay. A, it was a, an organization that helped give uh, young young stu- young people um, jobs and campaigns so they could get their feet wet in politics. So I did that through the election, and then I ended up going to D.C., so closer to home to Maryland, and got a job with APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, and I was a legislative assistant for APAC for a year, a year and a half, um, working with their lobbyists and covering hearings on Capitol Hill. Was going into politics kind of a purposeful decision before law school? Did you still know you wanted to ultimately end up in law school and you were going to spend your time off immersed in politics? I had done some political stuff during college as well. I had um, interned for the governor's legal council in Boston as an internship. I had interned for the local congressman, Ed Markey, in his district office. Um, so I had, you know, I was interested in politics. I, I ran a, I ran the pro-Israel group on on Tufts campus. So there were different things that, that I was interested in um, related to politics. So these, these were all, without knowing what I wanted to do or having made a decision about that, they were all natural steps um, in different dire- – you know, following a path. I think when I was working at APAC, one of the thought was what do I do to, to go further in this career? I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. And one of the thoughts was I, I go to law school. That's the way you get that next degree that allows you to do more in politics or whatever it is you want to pursue. So how did you decide where to go to law school? Did you apply to only D.C. schools? Did you apply just East Coast? So I, I, I think I applied mostly East Coast. I, I don't remember applying anywhere else than that. And um, and I got into Georgetown uh, among, you know, that was like the top place I got into. I think I got waitlisted at Penn and I was like, oh, I'm not going to see if I ever get off the waitlist. I don't <laughs> even want to know. Um, so I got into Georgetown and I deferred for a year so I could work for a second year at APAC because I was enjoying that. And um, – and then started at Georgetown after two years. So you applied you, – you, you went through the application process pretty early on in the two years you took off. Like the first – that was that first year while you were – were you take, studying for the LSAT when you were up in New Hampshire? And I took the LSATs before, right my senior right. year of college, like, Smart. like second semester senior year, something like that, where it was too late to apply. Mm-hmm. But I had it done and under my belt. That's good. And then tell us a little bit about your experience at Georgetown. What was that like? So I enjoyed Georgetown. I had a, a really close group of friends uh, uh, who I met my first year in my in my section. Uh, many of whom remain friends to this day. I still do, uh, uh, you know, do work and refer cases back and forth to people who were in my in my section. Um, I ended up uh, spending time in the sex discrimination clinic, which was their domestic violence clinic, where we got to represent battered women in court. Um, dealing with stay-away orders and and some uh, visitation and custody-type issues. That was a fascinating experience. Um, I did law journal stuff, so you did all the site-checking and uh, all the stuff fun, you do. Right, <laughs> really fun stuff. Um, and and I, I 
you know, there's people who say, oh, I, I, don't, I didn't like property or I didn't like this. I liked every class in law school. If it was a complicated issue that I had to get my mind around, I just enjoyed figuring it out. So I enjoyed property and I enjoyed wills and trusts and I enjoyed contracts. I had a great contracts professor. I enjoyed, you know, any number of classes. Um, I had a white-collar crime professor who was a former Southern District of New York, AUSA, who was just fantastic and who brought in AUSAs to give us uh, talks in the class. And we worked on the sentencing guidelines and did analyses. It was a, I had a lot of really great professors and great experiences there. Going back to the DV clinic, <clears throat> was that something you sought out or was that something you kind of fell into? Like I, I joined a habeas clinic when I was in law school and I just happened to really like the professor who was in charge of the clinic. I wasn't necessarily interested in, in habeas work. So um, I mentioned my mother was a social worker. She had um, counseled battered women in her work as a social worker. So I knew about the issue and I wanted opportunities to be an advocate in court for people. So that was kind of like my first job in some ways as a prosecutor. So no, you applied for the sex discrimination clinic. You had to explain why you wanted to get in. There were other interesting clinics in Georgetown, but that was the one I really wanted to pursue and was happy to get into it. Were you still thinking when you were at Georgetown that you would potentially go back to a place like APAC or, you know, work in politics after you were uh, out of law school? Or did you very quickly decide, you know, you wanted to be a trial attorney? Just, you know, did the, did the plan change? I think I decided I wanted to be a litigator. I mean, I took a civil discovery class at one point that was more of a, a seminar where you really worked on issues of, dis, you know, how do you write document demands and how do you write interrogatories and really digging into the the details of discovery. Um, and, you know, and the same thing with the domestic violence clinic. You were in court representing clients and, and making arguments before a judge. So um, I don't know that – I don't remember if there was a particular time that I said that's the kind of lawyer I want to be. But there was a trend towards realizing that I was interested in litigation and wanting to pursue more of that. Although I really at first thought it was going to be civil litigation. I didn't imagine myself being a – uh, involved in the criminal realm. So how did how did that happen? How did you end up in the criminal realm? So um, I took this white collar crime class with uh, Professor Julio Sullivan, who was fantastic, and um, I got a lot of exposure to white collar crime issues that way. Ended up um, getting a clerkship out of Georgetown with um, a judge here in the Southern District of New York in the federal court. So I went there immediately after law school and. Got to watch the AUSAs in action when they appeared before the judge, and mm -hmm. they just seemed fantastic. They were mm -hmm. just, you know, these bright young men and women who had these fascinating cases, whether it was mob trials or, or drug cases or whatever it was that you know these fascinating issues were coming before the court. Um, and I just, you know, saw pieces of them, saw sentencing, saw, um, saw trials, those kind of things, and. I thought, wow, those people are fantastic and the job they're doing uh, resonated with me. And so I at some point decided that was something I wanted to, to keep as a, an opportunity, something to, to try to pursue. Obviously, the, the DV clinic probably lends itself more to state prosecution work. Was there ever a thought to maybe I'll be a state prosecutor? No, I don't think so. I mean that wasn't my, my – wasn't my first choice. I was really I, – I got exposed to the AUSAs when I was a law clerk and I was not exposed to the state system. And even to this day, I've practiced very little in the state system. So that was never a, a particularly natural fit for me, whereas the federal – I took federal courts back in the day at law school knowing I was going into this clerkship by the – you know by my third year. So the idea of practicing in the federal courts has always been really comfortable for me. And it was a natural fit to think about being a federal prosecutor um, following on that way. So that's interesting. You, you began to, it sounds like, start to tailor some of your coursework, at least third year, towards working in the federal system. Well, again, I knew I was going to be a law clerk. So yeah. I wanted to take this federal courts class to support the idea that I would know something about what I was sure. doing. And you know, when you show up as a law clerk and you have no idea what you're doing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that also was a huge learning experience. Did the what was the the clerkship process like? How did you end up um, going from DC? You never sort of worked in New York City. Was was it a priority for you to be in New York City, or did you go to the best judge that you got a 
offer with or someone that you were politically in line with? How did that, how did that shake out? So up? it was like law school. I applied up and down the East Coast essentially. Um, kind of every town I would be interested in. I applied, you know, Boston and D.C. and New York uh, and Philadelphia and Maryland, uh, Baltimore. I was I was just applying. And uh, then the judges would, you know, if they were interested, they'd bring you in for an interview. And um, the very first interview I had was with my judge in New York. And we really struck off a, a struck a really good conversation and relationship in that interview. And he offered me the job like that afternoon or that evening. And you just, you know, I was told you say yes to the first judge who offers you the job. I had, I, I, I had at least one other interview lined up, but I never got there. I just accepted this job and, and it was fantastic. It was a, and it was a one-year clerkship? One year, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you prepared for that interview, how you got yourself ready to go talk to this, to this federal judge? I don't remember being any different than any other interview. Uh, I read what I could about him and his background and what he was like. I think I used my network. I knew some people who had either clerked for the judge or knew the judge to be in touch with them. Uh, I had a friend from college actually who had been a clerk too. So Mm -hmm. I was in touch with people I knew um, to get information about the judge. I read opinions that the judge had written. Um, You know – it turned out that the judge I had learned liked music and I had grown up playing trombone in you know, middle school and oh, high wow. school and I stopped after my freshman year of college and we ended up talking about music. So I was ended up speaking to him about how you make different notes playing a trombone and he was fascinated by the way that the trombone made a sound and made – differences in notes compared to how the piano, which he played, made notes. And that was where we really hit it off, having this, you know, random discussion about an instrument I hadn't played in, you know, <laughs> five years or something by the time we I was sitting in his chambers. And I'm sure that he appreciated the fact that you were bringing up something that was of personal interest to him. And he probably knew that you found that out through That's probably diligent right. research. That's probably right. I mean, I probably asked him about his music that that he was interested. In. So it was a it was a good connection. Yeah, and now there's really no excuse for for law students to not find out as much as possible about whether it's a an employer or a judge. There's so much information out there, and even getting those like little morsels about this judge likes music or this judge likes movies. Getting that extra information is such a great way to get an extra edge in an interview. Well, but it's also as a part as a practitioner, right? If you're going in front of a judge, uh, I'm trying to to know what that judge is about when I'm appearing before him or her on on my cases too. Yeah. Do you think that being that the that the year long clerkship uh, had a significant impact on your career as a lawyer? Like, do you feel like that experience was? Uh, you you think about that a lot today, just when you're when you're in your practice. So it was significant in that it gave you insights as to how lots of people practice in front of judges. Hmm. So in terms of knowing when it's appropriate to pick up the phone and call a clerk on a case or when I what I can do by letter as opposed to do by motion hmm. or how you know the judge might approach sentencing or or a conference or something like that or even what 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 can I expect? When 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 do I start spotting issues that something wrong is going on? I can turn to that knowledge um, to to get that insight. Sure. But um, that that's the way it helped. There weren't particular lessons learned, uh, you know, on a particular subject matter of law that I'm going to be relying on in, in anything I do. That's interesting. It's almost like you you reverse. I had the ability to reverse engineer part of the process so that you could figure out the best path to get to the end result. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but mostly it's just understanding, you know, what the culture and the life. When can I call the law clerk? When yeah. can I expect? How can I expect the judge to approach this? What's it going to? What are these things going to be like to the judge? So that so that the audience, the judge is is often the audience, and to the degree I can see. Better and understand what how the audience is going to interpret what I'm doing as an advocate. Yeah. That's huge for me. It's interesting because as as a litigator um, and now as a, a solo litigator, I'm not typically worried about going into court and making arguments or or cross examining a witness. 
I'm worried about process because every judge has a different process. They approach things in different ways and you never really know the right way to do it unless you've been in front of that particular judge before. So I could see how having exposure to kind of the behind the scenes of the process would be really helpful. Right, right. So how long while you were while you were at the um, while you were doing the clerkship, did you start applying for uh, jobs as a federal prosecutor? No, um, I was. A lot of the U.S. Attorney's Office want you to get two or three years of practice under your belt before you apply. Gotcha. So I understood that, and I ended up looking for uh, law firm opportunities where I could get great exposure as a young attorney. And I ended up going to a nine-attorney litigation boutique of four partners and five associates where two of the partners were former Southern District AUSAs with, who, who encouraged um, their associates to work for them for a few years and then go on to public service mm. if, they, if they wished. So there were alums was, from that firm who had gone on to be magistrate judges or, or professors doing – Was that things. a difficult decision? I'm, I'm sure coming from you know a, a, a – prestigious clerkship you could have gone to you know Skadden you could have gone to any of the top firms did was that sort of a tough decision to go to a smaller boutique practice as opposed to big law well there were two tough decisions one was do I go you know something else in the government right away mm-hmm. and I remember talking to the judge about that and the judge said to me look it, it you can be a, a government lawyer for whatever you want in your career but it's good to have clients and know what it is to actually have a client at some point in your career. So go take a job with a private firm and have a client and see what it's like to actually represent people with you know, either civil or criminal issues, whatever the issues are. So I thought that was a really interesting piece of advice from the judge. Um, it's a great piece of advice. Yeah. I didn't have a client for eight and a half years and it's almost – it's a shell shock to, to deal with a client for the first time and to talk to them about paying money – and dealing with all the things that you don't have to deal with when you're a government employee. Right, right. And so then the second choice was, okay, now, so if, I'm, if I want to have a client and want to work in private practice, what are the options? And I had summered at a big firm and uh, had turned down like even a second summer, that third year between the clerkship, between right. the last year of law school and the clerkship. I could have gone back to another big firm uh, and I turned that down. Um, and – Decided that I liked this idea of going to a, 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 a small litigation boutique, but one that was prestigious. One So this particular litigation boutique, all of the associates were former law clerks, either in the Southern District or the Third Circuit. So it was a it was a place where I felt like I wasn't giving anything up, and they were promising me early opportunities to take and defend depositions so that I, I wasn't going to be just a cog in the biggest machine. And I liked that idea. Uh, you know, And there ended up being pros and cons with that. But one of the pros was – uh, that I thought that if I did great work for these two guys who were former Southern District AUSAs, they could help shepherd my way onto the office and give me um, good recommendations. And it, it was known that there were other firms in town where there were former Southern District folks who would send you know, one person a year and people would all go to that particular white-collar boutique to be that one person a year to go to the Southern and one person to go to Eastern. And I didn't want to be in line and have the, the randomness of whether I was going to be that person. So I went to a firm where – I thought there'd be an op- because it was smaller. I thought there'd be a real opportunity if I wanted to go onto the government that they would help me get there, and it worked out. You mentioned the cons. That what were the cons? Well, to this day, I, I didn't build those relationships. I built relationships with nine attorneys. Right? I could have if I, I have colleagues who went to you know a big big law, and they built relationships with twenty five, fifty attorneys, and so now, fifteen years, twenty years later. They have relationships with 50 attorneys from a three-year period when I have relationships with nine attorneys. That's really interesting. So um, in that way, the, that was a con. That was a con. Was it kind of preordained you'd spend two or three years there and then try to move to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office? Was there ever a thought to stay in there longer? So it wasn't preordained. There were um, there were colleagues who stayed longer. Uh, I think pretty much everybody who was the uh, all but one of the associates who were there before me were still there when I left. Okay. Um, one of the associates went on to become a named partner at the firm. Uh, so there were there were ways to grow. Uh, 
so it wasn't preordained, but um, for me, uh, after doing that practice for, I would say for about three and a half years and never getting a trial, I was like, this is, I don't want to grow up to be that litigator who's never tried cases. Sure. So how do I, you know, and I'm, I'm interested in public service and I'm interested in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So putting all that together uh, helped me make the decision to apply. It also sounds like big picture. You, you really had a plan from pretty early on in your legal career as to where you wanted to end up. And you, I think you, it sounds like, you, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're always kind of thinking back to that plan. I see. I don't think of it that way because I never thought that I ever had. A, I, I, you know, like I said, I thought I was going to be a civil attorney. I didn't imagine myself going to the U.S. Attorney's Office, but I, you know, I got a taste of something, and it moved me in a direction. I ended up, I, you know, from one of the reasons I took the white collar crime class was kind of like you you alluded to. I had, it was the the professor was great, mm-hmm. and so let's just take a class with a great professor, and I ended up getting a lot out of that class. Uh, and then I had this. You know, the clerkship was a fantastic opportunity that no matter what I was going to do, it was great to get that opportunity. And then when I'm there, I experienced new things. Okay, these AUSAs are really cool. I had already done some government work. So for in in that my third year, between third year of law school and, and the clerkship that summer, I was um I was a, I was in I was in the civil division of DOJ in Washington. As a as an honors DOJ intern or whatever it was, so I got had a paid internship for six weeks that summer. But the quality, you know, the attorneys there were fantastic, but it was different than the attorneys I saw who were the AUSAs um, in court when I was a law clerk. Yeah, I think that's. I, I feel very much the same. What like, I feel like for me, I most of my career decisions have been influenced by almost the thing that came immediately before it. I sort of think. Had I potentially, I had a fine experience at Cahill, but had I, you know, had worked under a slightly different partner or, you know, it, it, it very easily could have stayed there longer or. Let's go you into know. your once a podcast Cahill bashing. <laughs> I love when you bash Cahill. I never bash Cahill. Brought I'm very, I'm Cahill. very careful not to bash anyone. Um, but no, I do think that, you know, it, it, it's, it's sometimes it looks like there's a, there's a clear path and a clear plan, like you were just saying. And it's only sort of in hindsight. It, it is much more, uh, you know, bouncing from one thing to the next just based on very random haphazard experiences. Yeah, but not just always haphazard. I mean, partly it's, it's finding yeah. things that For you sure. love and right. what you're interested in. Maybe if I got more trials, I would have said, look, right. I can grow up to be that litigator I want to be without having to do government service. And maybe I'll put the government service aside because I like this other thing I'm I'm getting experience doing. Was it was it a difficult financial decision to go from private practice to the government? So it ended up it, it was not a difficult financial decision, and you know we we didn't overreach. I, I had gotten I had gotten married two years before. Uh, I had gotten married. We'll, um, we'll cut this part of the podcast. <laughs> Somewhere around that time. I'm trying to remember when I started. Between so I started 93 and – I started at the U.S. Attorney's Office in January of 2002 and I got married in, in February 2000. So I had gotten married. I had – we had both been – you know, my, my wife had a job with a she – was, she was she was an internet person. She was with a big internet company before the bubble back then. I was at a private firm. So we had two great salaries. We owned an apartment, but we hadn't – we had bought an apartment in 99, but we hadn't overextended to really go crazy in what we bought. And so I did take like a 50 percent cut when I went to the government, but it, but we hadn't so overextended ourselves that we couldn't do it. And when – in 2003, we ended up having our, our first child, and my wife stopped working altogether. Uh, we were still able to do all that. At that point, the government salary had gone up a little bit, um, and we were still able to do all that. But it was uh, so. So you'd think that it could be potentially really tough to do that jump uh, from private practice to to back to the government. But luckily, we had not overextended ourselves in, in the housing market, and it allowed us to some flexibility, which to this day has been a great thing. I mean, I think that's also that's a great lesson for, for young lawyers who um, don't think about these things until they have some money. Um, you know, you, you're in law school, you have nothing, right? You don't have any money. Maybe you have your parents' credit card. And then all of a sudden, you have all this money, 
and you have and if you're in New York or DC or a big metropolitan city there's all this temptation to spend 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 and you have to kind of give thought to what what might my career path look like how long am i going to uh, be at this one place and start to plan some of the financial the financial part of your future also in tandem with the career piece of your future right i think you want to make sure you don't go to the very edge but, you know, those are all – look, thinking back now, 20 years later, if I could have bought that third apart, that third room in the apartment, that would have been great. But that's easy to say now because if I had bought that third room, I couldn't have done a bunch of other things I did like going to the government. So the, it's um, – the choices are tough ones, but they're important choices. Can you talk a little bit about the interview process um, for, the, for the U.S. Attorney's Office? So – how they did it back in, in 2001. <laughs> so we're talking a long time ago. Um, and I, I don't think it has changed a whole lot. You, uh, you did a first round with both criminal division, two criminal division AUSAs with separate interviews and two civil division AUSAs. Um, and then if you get brought back, you have um, rounds with more senior folks. And it may be even in that second round that you get an interview with the U.S. attorney. Uh, and then you ultimately get the offer from the U.S. attorney. Um, some of the critical decisions are do you want to be in the criminal division or the civil division and having to you know, have a rationale or an explanation about why you want one versus the other. And you may have to explain that to a civil division attorney why you don't want to do civil division if that's yeah. what you don't want. You know, If your heart's set on criminal, how do you tell the civil division attorney without insulting them that you don't want their job? So, you know, so how'd you do that? So – my answer was that I, I was at this nine attorney litigation boutique and I said, look, I have a fantastic civil job right now with, with great attorneys doing really interesting civil work. Um, but what I want to get a chance to do is, is do criminal work, which I haven't done and have all the trial experience you get and all the time being on my feet in court that you get out of being a criminal AUSA. So that was, that was my answer. And how long did you stay at the uh – at the it was the Eastern District, the Southern Southern District. District. Excuse me. How long were you there? I was there for six and a half years. Okay, so from uh, yeah January '02 until uh, May of '08. And and tell us a little bit about the work you were doing while you were there. So I mean, it's a look. It's a fantastic job. You spend your first year as a young prosecutor in the General Crimes Unit, doing just a ton of cases where you're going through files and files of cases so that you can get trials as a as a young attorney. Um, and you're doing uh, – I mean back then, this was right after 9-11, right? So I started in January of 2002. We were doing marriage fraud cases, targeting people who were uh, getting citizenship for money. Mm-hmm. We were doing some illegal reentry cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were doing passport fraud cases. So cases that were, inv- were revolved around um, trying to determine that the people who were legally in the country were here at that time and that, that was an important policy after 9-11. Uh, we did small gun cases, felon in possession of a firearm. We did small bank robbery cases. Maybe somebody took an envelope of cash as a bank teller and, and walked out the door with it. Um, uh, embezzlement cases, somebody who was a secretary of the law firm or a bookkeeper in embezzlement. Did, did you feel like in doing these cases, was this civil litigation experience that you had, uh, did that help you or did you sort of feel like you were learning a completely new – uh, skill set in so, as a so, prosecutor. Look, the substance was new. I didn't know how to argue bail. I didn't know what a grand jury presentation was about. I didn't know the elements of the crime. But things like writing a letter to the judge and picking up the phone and calling the law clerk on something, those were things that I had, had done both as a law clerk and then as a, as a young associate. So that part was, was normal. Um, Studying the documents and being able to make discovery and understand what building a case was about was stuff that I had already learned to some degree. Did you notice any difference between yourself and your colleagues who had come from bigger practice? It's it's hard to say. I mean, there there were people who had been um, practicing in white collar firms. uh, and who had a lot more experience in the criminal world than I did. And for them, you know, the ramp up was much faster than someone like me who hadn't had that experience, but it didn't seem to be a, I don't, it didn't seem to be a big firm, small firm thing. 
And then going on, so that was general crimes for the first year. Then narcotics was the second year where we learned to write wiretaps um, and do a, all sorts of drug distribution cases. I ended up doing a lot of crystal meth cases, um, targeting you know large networks distributing crystal meth in Manhattan. Um, and then from there, I went to the securities unit, uh, and I was in the securities unit for about four and a half years where I did a – first, you bring your old cases with you. So my narcotics cases followed me. But in addition, I was doing everything from boiler rooms and pump and dump cases to accounting frauds uh, and insider trading cases, um, hedge fund frauds, I mean, a, a wide variety of broker bribery, uh, a whole variety of, of cases um, in the securities unit. Uh, it, it was uh, it was fascinating, and then you know a, in that office you do things from beginning to end. So you start your case at the investigation stage, you take it through trial or plea, and then you'd stand up in the second circuit and you do the oral argument and write the brief um, if if they appeal it. So you know your case from from sure. every aspect of it. Were you working as hard or harder than you were when you were at the firm? For certainly the first two years, I was working harder. There were just more hours and more you know you had just more cases and more hours of of digging into them all the first two years then it relaxed as you got into the more senior units but um but the first two years it was and then when you and then you had trials you I was never on trial at the firm, part of the reason I left so you know when you're on trial you 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 work every day and every hour so that's a, a completely different animal. Then. I'm guessing here, but I would imagine the securities unit was a very desirable unit to go to. Was that a merit-based merit decision? How did you get from narcotics, which it sounds like everybody went to narcotics after the general crimes unit, to securities? Yeah, I mean you had to – I had to um, – I had to lobby essentially to try to get into the securities unit. I had – and I think it was merit-based. It was the decision of the U.S. attorney uh, or, or someone higher up, uh, some of the, the deputies, someone like that made a decision about what unit you got to go to. But you made clear that you wanted to go to the securities unit. Yeah, I had a friend who I had worked with, someone who had like second sat me on something I had worked on, who said, Steve, you really ought to try to go to the securities unit. And um, you know, if you don't express a preference, you'll go to X unit. But if you, if you want to do something, you need to stand up and express a preference and tell them. And and ask for it, and so I did, and they selected me. So I was lucky enough to do that. So uh, yeah, it was it wasn't the the path that most people took. Steve, what do you what do you think is sort of driving you at this point in your life? Is it to rise the ranks of the Southern District, and or is it you know political aspirations, or is it making as much money as you can? Um, what's what sort of what's do you, when thinking back, what was kind of your primary motivator? I think that you know my primary motivator. I had always imagined a, a career that where you could you know do well by doing good, right? So that you could both do public service, you could do time in private practice, and then maybe go back to public service again. I had I had summered at Aiken Gump in D.C., which was known as a firm that that did that kind of uh, round trip that people would spend time at the firm and then they would go and, and do public service in Washington in some way and then they'd go back to the firm and then they'd go back to public service. So I had imagined that kind of career for myself. Um, I'm still interested in pursuing that kind of career. As, as time goes on, it's sometimes harder to figure out how do you go back and do that next thing and then you get other requirements in between. So I got two kids that I have to at some point make sure I send to college. So I got I have a, a kid going – a son going into eighth grade and a daughter going into sixth grade. So I got four more years before he goes to college and, and six more years for her. So really that means <clears throat> 10 more years before I'm free of those things. Well, you created an app, so they could just create an app. Exactly. And they don't have to go to college. That, that would be that. great. That would be great. So, I mean, so you, so there's all kinds of balances. So you, there's – I have an interest in doing public service, but I also have my obligations to the family, and you have to figure out how you balance those. And and were those obligations to your family, were you – is that what sort of brought you back to private practice? Yeah. I was um, – when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I had um, two kids – 
in private preschool in Manhattan, and I was on financial aid. Here, that's here, that's pretty cheap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, it was it was I never wanted to be the person getting financial aid. I wanted to be the person giving money so others could get financial aid. And so, as I'm you know signing up for financial aid as a federal prosecutor to send my kids to preschool in Manhattan, I said, I guess I got to go. I got to leave. I love this job, but. And then go try something else for a while that pays me a little more. And you like single malt, so to to afford a really nice single malt. Yes, yes, I, that's, <laughs> that's very true. But you can find, you know, there's some good ones that at a, at a lower price point that are really delicious if you look hard. We'll talk about it on a, on a different podcast. But okay, I, I'd love to talk about that more. <laughs> Was that a was was leaving the government? I know I've talked to other government attorneys who have made that transition, and I think for for many of them, it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult transition, um, almost more difficult than going the other way. I think um, just based on the conversations I've had, and I think for them, it's 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 the pace and the excitement, and then you go to a firm, and and maybe that same um, maybe this isn't the right way of saying it, but self-worth that is derived from that, from being sort of a, a federal prosecutor is gone and missing. I think a lot of people find sort of a sense of identity from that. Did you experience any of that when you went back to private practice? I mean, there's a lot of tough things about the transition from government to private practice. I don't know if those are the particular – I mean, hmm. um, look, it's, it's just hard to be in private practice. I mean, hard to find that next case, whether mm-hmm. you're with a firm or uh, – so as a – as a young attorney, suddenly having to try to, you know, a young partner, which I was after I left the government, trying to make rain suddenly, it's a ton of work. And you don't realize how much work it is when you're, you know, in the government. You think people are just going to come, you know, knocking down your door. Uh, you have to learn how to pitch for cases. For no sure. one ever taught me how to pitch or how to market. Uh, that, that was all completely new as I, you know, when I stepped into private practice. Um, the as you said, the fun of being on trial or or being in court on your feet all the time. You you don't have that mixture as much, uh, so so I certainly missed that. Um, yeah, there's a certain you know when you do public service or even politics that you believe in, you're excited. You have a mission that you're getting up every day for, right? And so you have to figure out in private practice how to motivate yourself, how to decide you have a mission. So you look the the mission in. And that's why I like criminal law better than civil law, right? The mission in criminal law is we have people who need a an advocate on their behalf as they're being you know ground by the system or being challenged by the system or being prosecuted by the system. And you're doing a really important work as a defense attorney, as opposed to civil work, which for me was you know rich people fighting over money, sure. and I could be somebody's mouthpiece. Yeah, but it wasn't as as um, satisfying. So you have to try to find that satisfaction in private practice. So there were there was a, a ton of challenges and then you had, you know, things like the politics of the firm and people trying to steal your clients and mm-hmm. knifing you in the back and you know all all that kind of stuff right. that you know whereas the the US attorney's office was incredibly collegial mm-hmm. you get to a firm and it can be extra totally. not that same situation even though it should be. Right. Are there any sort of looking back in your career thus far, are there any particular – like what do you attribute most of your success to? Is it a particular – is there a particular skill set or your you know, your analytical thinking, your reading and writing ability, your ability to work with people? Is there something that you sort of point to and say that's sort of why I've been able to be so successful? I, I don't I, – I don't – first I – you know. I don't know how successful I am, right? It's every day you got to get up and find that next case, and uh, and some days you're busy and you're really happy. Very, I think you're being too modest, but and some I'll days you're to, like, I'll allow you to keep going. And some days you're like, you're twiddling your thumbs because you know you got to find that next case, right. and all of us have that challenge. Um, but I, you know, for me, there's a, you know, I, I think I connect with my clients, and I think I have a certain empathy that that I'm able to to work with them. I think I have a certain approach that I can use when I talk with prosecutors and when I'm working with the government on the other side. Um, you know, sometimes that approach might be extremely friendly and nice and never actually do anything for them on the other side, right? But but choosing to be cordial in the right way, hopefully. But 
but with that, while still being an advocate and not giving anything up for your client, um, but at least making it pleasant as you have to, as you give nothing up for your client, that might get you a little farther. Uh, but then it's also being really knowledgeable about the issues you're dealing with. And, and I mean, there's a whole art to this when you're, whether it's an investigation or trying to figure out whether the self-report or trying to convince prosecutors to exercise discretion and not prosecute your client or deciding when you need to go to trial. I mean, there's, there's, there's some intuition that applies to, to all that, uh, that I like to think I have good judgment and, and can help my clients navigate those situations. I, I think the word empathy is, is a great word to talk about because, um, I personally find it lacking sometimes in other attorneys, and I'm I'm wondering, was there an experience? And I'm thinking again of the DV clinic, but but do you think there was an experience that enhanced that skill? It's it it tends to not be a natural skill for attorneys. I find. I mean, I could give my mother credit, right, for, as the as the social <laughs> ahead, worker, yeah. right, as the social worker who raised me with all whatever the touchy feely social work stuff is that they that they do. Um, I often felt like, you know, my mom was the clinician, and my brother and and me were, you know, were whatever she was doing to, you know, tell me more how that's making you feel, son. So uh, it may be that I learned to. Um, echo the way my mother approached her clients and approached people and, and how she had learned it through social work school. Um, I think the domestic violence clinic was a step in that same direction and in that development. Yeah. I, be- I bet that skill set really made you a really good prosecutor because that is a place where I where I, I personally saw sometimes a lack of empathy. And that's so important in developing a rapport with a victim or a witness. Um, and then that tr- obviously translates to dealing with clients too. Right. And I think there's also almost an aspect. So the other part of my, you know, my upbringing, as I mentioned, when my dad was a pharmacist, he, he owned far- a pharmacy in my town. And so as a kid, I worked with him. I would work on Sundays at the pharmacy. So there's also an aspect of like customer service to it all. Sure. It's like, can I help you find the aspirin? Sure I can. Here, it's right down here on aisle two on the right. Or, um, you know, you're. Let me deliver that prescription to your house, or you're upset. Let me figure out how we can get this done for you. So there's a certain amount of customer service that I feel like I apply towards my clients, but also I try to apply towards the prosecutors and the people on the other side who I'm having to deal with. Steve, are there any pieces of advice or any books, movies that you would recommend a you know an attorney who's just out of law school and interested in a, in pursuing a similar career arc to your own that you would recommend. So, so we're, I remember reading a couple great books as a uh, you know either either before going to law school or, or early on in law school. Um, Jeffrey Tubin wrote a book uh, back before he was famous at all. Uh, called like a young lawyer's first case, U.S. Mm-hmm. v. Oliver North, which was about his role uh, on the on the team prosecuting Oliver North. And I remember reading that book as you know, as a I think a, a college student or maybe after college right. and before law school, um, and just being fascinated by his experience. And I also remember reading um, Arthur Lyman's biography about you know he the Arthur Lyman was a famous. Uh, practitioner here in New York, both uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office and then in civil practice, and um, you know, and again, kind of that life of doing well by doing good, spending time in public life and in private practice, and being successful in both places. So those were models that that spoke to me when I read their books, um, and that I would recommend to folks. For someone out there who's maybe a 1L in law school who's thinking, one day I want to be a federal prosecutor, what's something they can do right now, 1L year, outside of doing really well in school? <laughs> that's going to be my answer. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the easy answer. Outside of finishing the top 10% of their class, what can they do to to put themselves on that track? So let me step one step back, which was you, you guys had asked me about some of the what, what were some of the important steps and what I didn't mention. Right? We talked about I took two years off. The importance of the two years for me between college and law school 
was I had this, you know, I, I was a smart kid wherever I went and did well enough at everything I did without having to try really hard. And that made me, a, you know, an A minus or B plus student wherever, you know, you know, at hard places. But that was not going to be enough to be really successful at law school. And I took those two years off. And what I found during those two years is that I'd go to – I was making you know, 23 grand a year or whatever working in politics or even less than that when I was sleeping on the couch of the congressman supporter. And, <laughs> but I was working these incredibly long days. And I said to myself, if I can work really super hard for these people – where they're barely paying me anything, how come I can't work that hard for myself when I'm going to be paying tuition of, you know, of almost that much money each year to be in law school? And so I went into law school and I treated law school that first year like those same jobs I'd been doing for the past two years. And I would get there at nine in the morning and I would go to my classes and then go back to the library and I would stay there until I finished my homework at nine at night, just like I would do at my job to make sure I prepared for my meetings the next day. And I did great. And so the biggest change for me was this realization that if I worked really hard at it, I really could be at, at the very top of, of my game and at the top of the class. And that made all the difference for me going forward. And it was from there that, you know, that first year that you're able to get into law review and then you're able to be competitive for a clerkship and you're able to – I mean – all those things stack up on each other. But there were kids – I wasn't an Ivy League school kid, right? But there were kids who had gone to Ivy League colleges uh, who were in my first-year class and they didn't do as well as me. In part, I thought, because they had gone directly from college to law school and still had that college mentality. And law school will eat you up if you have that college mentality. So – Rather than trying to figure out what to do as a 1L to, you know, uh, I even think go back farther. Make sure you go into law school with the with that thought in your head of how you're really going to approach this and treat it like a job. It's no longer school the way high school was or college was. It is now this is your job. That's that's great advice. And it's, I, I think it's almost like pro sports, right? Every person who makes – the big leagues is really talented, really successful in some way, but it's the people who kind of put in that extra work, that extra effort, who are really disciplined, who you see become the next superstar, who who, who get to where they want to be. I have a question about why you chose this beer. <laughs> I think my last comment is just asking both of you to apologize to me for making fun of me for... It was, it was, I enjoyed the beer. Thank you very much. For the record, I, I finished a full beer during the interview. So did I. And it was, I think it, it was which good. Might, which might be the first time ever during an interview that I've actually drank the entire beer. So <laughs> I'm still finishing it. <laughs> well, on that note, Steve, thank you so Steve, much for, you. for taking the time and being here tonight. This was a great conversation. Thank you very much, guys. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Appreciate it.